The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as always, by my good pal and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. I'm really excited for this Women's World Cup coming up. Should be a good one. It should indeed. And you've already given us a teaser as to what the episode is going to be about today. We are joined by two very special guests. So we have Chloe Morgan, who's a former professional goalkeeper, but is now with us at The Athletic working as an editor. And then Jesse Parker Humphreys as well, a freelance women's football writer who's often found on a number of different outlets, which we will talk about in the episode itself. But as you said, Mike, this is all about the Women's World Cup, which is coming up a few days away. What were the things that you took away from this episode? Yeah, John, the two things for me that Jesse and Chloe were talking about is one, Chloe was talking about how Spain is so talented, yet they can't seem to put it together on the pitch. I just I find that fascinating because you you go through their roster and it's star after star, world class player after world class player, and they just can't seem to get past like the quarterfinal stage. It's almost similar to the to the Spain men's squad that we were kind of used to seeing before the twenty ten tournament where Spain just couldn't get over that quarterfinal hump. And then what Jesse was talking about I'm actually excited to to see what the audience thinks and how they react to Jesse's hot take about the United States and um, and where they could finish. Yes, absolutely. And there's plenty of content going out on various channels over at The Athletic. So The Athletic will be putting up stuff every day during the tournament. We will also have some TIFO football videos that focus on the Women's World Cup, which Jesse will be hosting, which is really exciting to see as well. And Jesse will be over in Australia and covering the whole tournament on her substack, which is www.flyinggeese.football. So plenty of ways for you to catch lots of World Cup content as it comes up. But without further ado, I think we should get to the episode get our ears into it so today we are joined by a couple of very exciting guests here who are going to help us to get hyped for the world cup before it happens so first up we've got chloe morgan with us chloe great to have you on cheers thanks for having me chloe for those of you who don't know is a former spurs arsenal and crystal palace goalkeeper who also enjoyed a very successful career as a lawyer and we're now lucky enough to call her one of our own because she's recently joined The Athletic as an editor. So great to have you with us. And then Jesse Parker Humphreys, good to have you too. Thank you for having me. Jesse is a freelance women's football writer who's often found on the Counterpress podcast, the Box to Box podcast, the London is Blue podcast, and last but by no means least, writing for Opta's website, The Analyst. So thank you for joining us as well. So what we're going to do today is we're just going to spend a lot of time talking about the Women's World Cup just to get everyone excited about what is coming up. So let's start off with just a bit of a tournament overview. So the tournament starts on July the 20th with the final taking place on August the 20th in Sydney. Um, it, it is, as I've just suggested, taking place in Australia and New Zealand. So there's 10 stadiums across nine cities. I think there's two stadiums in Sydney and it might be a good place to jump in here actually just talking about the location because um, I think this is you know it seems as though having a women's world cup in Australia and New Zealand is sort of a long way away from the centers of gravity for women's football Um, obviously there's a part of the world cup which is about spreading the game into other parts of the world Uh, so that part of it is good but uh, I think there's been a lot of discussion in the run up to the World Cup about how far away it is from most of the uh, the big teams who are obviously European or um, American or America in general so yeah what, what do you what do we make about about this in particular how impactful do we think it's going to be that the World Cup is starting out in in Australia and New Zealand yeah I can't really figure out exactly where I land on this one and maybe I feel slightly differently about the New Zealand aspect, the Australian aspect. I think Australia clearly has like a burgeoning and exciting women's football landscape, which it makes sense to sort of encourage by having a World Cup there. I don't really feel like New Zealand is the same. And there's this weird thing where we kind of bundle Australia and New Zealand together, but they are two separate countries. (laughs) And it's not like you're, it's not like they're very easy to get between the two. Um, at the same time, I think, especially for Australia, when you look at the squad they've got, they've got this, you know, sort of golden generation of players of whom Sam Kerr is obviously the biggest name of them. And I think, you know, it's an incredible opportunity for them to have one of the best players in the world be Australian and get to lead out her side at a home World Cup. Um, but yeah, at the same time, I guess in Europe, it doesn't feel as much of an issue because you the games are on. They're just 
well, obviously the games are on everywhere, but the games are on at a normal time. It's just not a football time. It, it's like a t- 9, 10 a.m. In America, it's a bit different because it really is basically the middle of the night, I think. I think um, logistically, it's obviously a nightmare. I mean, trying to obviously like coordinate the tournament from the athletic perspective, it's, you know, you've got to make sure that every, everyone's in the right place at the right times. You don't know how far people are going to progress in the tournament. Um, but also, I think it's it's one of those tournaments that for European countries, I think, has kind of... Um, it's it's so expensive, like the cost of the flights, the internal flights, the accommodation, uh, the tickets themselves. It's kind of meant that quite a lot of European fans have not been able to access the tournament in the same way. And that sounds really selfish because obviously they have the same issues like the New Zealand, Australia, America, you know, when they came over to when they come over to you know European countries for, for major tournaments. But I think that is problematic and also it has had a big impact I suppose on some of the broadcasting deals as well because you know you're not going to be attracting the same kind of figures that you might do if it was it was all the matches were going to be played on you know primetime tv at six o'clock at night so you know having the games early on in the morning yeah it does sort of maybe downplay the kind of um you know the the products that people are watching over here but at the same time you know we have to we have to it's fair but i do i've got to agree with with jesse that you know having it across two countries two very separate distinct countries um is quite brutal yeah um it's a four-hour flight as well isn't it from australia to new zealand it's not like they're right next it's not too bright yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) um and also i think it's important to say at this point that we're so used to the amount of money that the men's game has and we just assume that that's, that's there across the women's game as well, which is going to impact the amount of media coverage. And, and it is going to, you know, it would be easy for the men's game to have a tournament in a country like Australia and make it work. Um, whereas it, it requires a lot more, as you've said, logistical forethought to, to, to get it when it's over in, in Australia. And I've heard a few uh, people talking, particularly journalists, just saying how few journalists are actually going to be out there from Europe because of the expense and because of the of the logistical aspects of it as well, which I suppose will have uh, an, an impact on the way that the game is is covered as well. So do you, yeah, do you have any thoughts on, on that aspect, the fact that um, we just assume that the women's game has the same level and expense of coverage that, that the men's game has and how that might impact things? I think um, from speaking to quite a few sort of the writers that you see at the, the media days, um, I know sort of, you know, obviously we're going to have a massive presence out there. We've been quite fortunate that we're going to have a base um, in Australia and also in New Zealand as well. So, you know, we're going to be massively focused on the Lionesses, massively focused on uh, the US side of things as well. And also Spain is sort of a big, a big focus for us as well so we've been quite fortunate that we've got such a big commitment um, from the Athletic to you know go out and and really sort of make sure that we're covering as many games as we can as possible all the issues that might crop up I mean women's football by its very nature is always very dramatic so I'm expecting there'll be sort of you know rogue decisions and loads of you know I don't know red cards or like big score lines that kind of thing so um, that's amazing for us but I think a lot of you know broadcasting teams and journalists and um, publications have only been able to kind of send one two people out there so the coverage will be sort of fairly limited for people and then you've got to think about the time zone as well of when those publications come out so it's um, logistically all around it's an absolute nightmare Mm. yeah (laughs) yeah um, let's talk about the format change as well, because this is the first Women's World Cup where they're going to have 32 teams rather than 24, which is what's happened previously. Uh, again, there's an element to which this is natural for the World Cup to want to do this because it is about expansion of, of football across the world to a degree. Um, a 32-team tournament makes a lot of sense as well from just a tournament logistics perspective as well. Uh, but obviously as we've seen with the men's game, which is expanding uh, in the future as well in, in the World Cup format, um, what, what ends up happening is that you have to introduce teams who maybe will take um, a, f- a few beatings along the way. So what impact do we think that that, that shift from, 20, uh, from, from 24 teams to 32 teams is going to have in terms of the, the, the way that the tournament feels? Yeah, I think to a certain extent it's going to be really exciting. Like lots of the smaller countries even if you do go through, they do have like standout players and it's in- incredible for those countries to get to go and those players specifically to get to go and play at a World Cup. And then there's also a really positive financial aspect that comes from that. You know, FIFA have spoken a lot about um, the, the prize money that players will get as a result of participating in the World Cup. And, you know, if, if you're a lioness, that money doesn't necessarily feel like it's going to be a really big deal compared to probably what you now realistically get, especially off the back of winning the Euros. But if you're from the Philippines, that is, you know, almost life-changing amounts of money potentially. Um, But at the same time, I do think there is kind of a natural teething problem in this, whereby we've already seen in past World Cups 
women's teams get absolutely thrashed. You know, the, the USA beating Thailand 13 nil in 2019 comes to mind. And there were lots of kind of strange criticisms that went around that, that, you know, the USA went too far by scoring that many goals and you get all this discourse that comes out of it. But, you know, it is, it's a hard thing to balance because countries are at very different stages in their, in their evolution. And, you know, I guess it's we've seen it in discussions around qualifiers on the men's and women's side. And obviously that is is why, like, the Nations League and that's being brought in in the women's game as well has been seen as such a good thing. I think ultimately this stuff is always... There's always going to be a hiccup when it comes in, but it's a necessary thing for those smaller teams to get the experience and, yeah, the funding basically as well to, to go on and, and become better ultimately. Hmm. In terms of the groups themselves, then, so we've got eight groups. Is there any that stand out to you guys in terms of the ones that you're going to be keeping an eye on in particular? Do you think that there is a bit of a thinning out because they have had to expand it a little bit, so there aren't really any groups of death, or is there anything in there that, that really stands out to you? Um, I think, obviously, for me, the massive focus is going to be Group D, uh, with the Lionesses obviously being in that. It's going to be really interesting to see sort of that opening game against Haiti. It was sort of a bit of an unknown quantity. Um, but then also Group F. I think, obviously, there's been a lot of um, unrest uh, amongst France and also just recently the Jamaica women's national team. Um, obviously, France seems to be a little bit more settled now that uh, Karine Diacre has gone, got Hervé uh, Renard coming in and sort of maybe shoring things up a little bit. They seem a little bit more settled. Um, so obviously, they're, they're the opening game um, in that group with France and Jamaica. And I think that's going to be sort of a, a quite an interesting ma- matchup. There's just, you know, so Jamaica's second time in the, in the World Cup. Um, you know, the reggae girls, they've got all this like environment, this kind of like, I think there's going to be quite a good fan base around them. Um, but yeah, because of all the sort of hype that's gone on with these two squads in the in the lead up, it's going to be interesting to see how they, they both perform from, from different varying angles. I mean, Jamaica, no one's expecting them to sort of progress that far. But France, obviously, we're, we're expecting bigger things. So mm. yeah, it'll be an interesting matchup. Yeah, group B as well, I think, stands out, right? Because you've got Australia and Canada in that group. And it's also going to impact England, what happens in that group, right? Yeah, Group B, I think, is the one that really stands out to me because I think there is there's an extent where all four of those teams might kind of feel like they only need a couple, like one result to potentially squeeze in. Obviously, Australia, as the host, will maybe feel the pressure that kind of comes with that. And Canada, Olympic gold medal winners, but they sometimes look quite stud- stodgy, I would say, um, is maybe the word. Um, they can look quite slow going forward in attack. Um, Ireland obviously going to a first World Cup they I think will go very defensive based on the squad that was announced yesterday Um, but when you've got players like Katie McCabe that's someone who can just change a game off the back of that so I think that could be a really interesting one especially if for example Australia and Canada draw Hmm. well let's start getting into some of the teams uh, the big teams in particular let's begin with England I think that makes a degree of sense so England are the European champions they they won last summer um, and uh, obviously, everyone will remember the the scenes, the the excitement that was that was happening when when that um, you know unfolded. But it does feel very much like the mood has changed quite dramatically since then over the course of of, of a year. Um, why why is this? Why why does the mood feel so different for, for around the England camp now than it did a year ago? Um, I think it's there's a, there's a massive level of expectation on the Lionesses. I think there's this kind of assumption that because we did so well last year that that will inevitably carry through into into this year. And, you know, obviously, whilst we are one of the favourites, there are also a number of massive squads here. I mean, the USA that we'll sort of touch on a little bit in, uh, in a second. But... I think obviously we've got to point to the injury crisis. It's been absolutely huge, and not just in the you know, just the England squad, but when you look across the WSL, it's just been absolutely prolific this year. I mean, and also escalating to the sense that now you know our captain was taken out a couple of months ago in, in the um, in the Manchester United game. So I think you know without someone like Leah Williamson, who was obviously such a, a spearhead, such a figurehead for the European Championship, such a, a rallier of the troops, uh, she had an incredible tournament. Um, and off the back of that, I had this incredible thing with the, you know, the legacy that she created with Lotta Wubermoy as well. Um, I just think that that is going to impact us slightly. And then our vice captain on top of that, uh, Millie Bright, also still not back in the squad, still, you know, doing her injury rehab at the, the training session. So there is this kind of, um, you know, who is our leader at the moment? Uh, who is going to be taking us to a tournament that is in the other side of the world with a a, a very or a younger squad? I think there's, the average age has gone down by two or three years this year. So we've got a number of um, players, you know, coming into to the fold who haven't haven't weren't a part of the the European Championship so um, yeah there's a lot of um, uns- it's a lot more unsettled than last year not so we won't do well but I think the expectation needs to be slightly tempered 
Yeah, and those injuries, really big injuries, right? So ACLs for Leah Williamson and Beth Mead, I believe. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure Frank Frank Kirby's out as well, which will be a, a real blow too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, but the only thing I will say, which maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I think Serena Wiegmann plays a very clear system. And in some ways, I think that's really to England's benefit because when you've got the players who are coming in to fill those positions, it's very obvious what their roles within the teams are going to be. And there there are some cases where I'm, I'm even tempted to argue potentially opens up more interesting things for England to do. For example, Alex Greenwood likely to play as the left-sided centre-back, without, whereas obviously Williamson and Bright were the, were the duo that played there, but um, Greenwood is left-footed. And obviously that automatically opens up a whole different set of passing angles and the way you can build up play. Um, looking further forward as well, obviously Beth Mead was the star of the Euros, and that, that is a big loss. But when you're talking about Chloe Kelly or Lauren James coming in to the team, they're, they're very exciting players. And I think whilst the... The relationships element is obviously still going to be lost. You know, England spent a load of time building up a very specific starting 11. You know, Wiegmann was very strict. She used the exact same starting 11 every game in the Euros. Um, and, and you lose that. But I think in terms of playing a very, very clear system um, in the way she sets up tactically, I do wonder if it won't necessarily be as disastrous as maybe it could have been if she was more flexible or fluid with a system mm. yeah that's, i do think that's that's really interesting because i think it might be a good time to talk about the approach that Wiegmann had in those games in the euros because she had this strategy of bringing players off the bench um at, at certain times um and and those players came on and, and actually had a big impact on those games seems as though that's going to be less of a of a um a dangerous uh, strategy for her this time around um on the counter press podcast that you were on where you were re- responding to the the squad the England squad announcement um, it, uh, it became a bit of a topic of conversation that that bench that they're going to end up with at the World Cup is going to look a little bit less of a, of a dangerous prospect in, in the World Cup so um, do we feel as though that is going to uh, result in, in some kind of a, a strategy change from Wiegmann is there, is there going to be less um, of, a, of a sense that things can change from the bench I'm not sure. I'm a bit conflicted on this because I do think there's a bit of outcome bias in the way that we view what the bench looked like before the Euros because Alessia Russo, Ella Toon and Chloe Kelly is kind of the three coming off the bench. I'd say Kelly was the only one who before the Euros really felt like a bona fide, like top, top player. Whereas Ella Toon and Alessia Russo were coming off the back of good seasons. We'd seen them play for United, but they weren't anything like the kind of stratospheric uh, viewpoint that they, they had after because of their performances and I think you can equally look at England's bench now and say well there's a number of players who could potentially play similar roles you know in terms of okay it seems like Alessia Russo will probably be the starting striker but Rachel Daly is potentially be the one who comes off the bench she just went and scored 20 goals in the in the WSL so she played left back for the Euros but arguably is a much more experienced player to be coming off the bench. Lauren James and Chloe Kelly, as I just referenced, one of them will start, one of them will come off the bench. Both very, very talented players. So I think it'll be interesting to see who she picks for those roles. But I don't think England have a shortage of talent when it comes to potentially still being able to do something very similar. I guess a lot of this comes down to the fact that people recognise the names now and so it feels less exciting I suppose but um, I think one of the the interesting inclusions in the squad was Beth England. Um I think there was a, a little bit of surprise at her inclusion. Why was why was that the case? To be honest, I don't know why the surprise was there. I mean, the whole reason that she'd moved across to Spurs was to obviously get herself in the eyeline of Serena Wiegmann. She wasn't getting the opportunities at Chelsea to play. She was sitting on the bench a lot of the time and she was being a wasted talent. I mean, you can see now what she's done for Spurs. I mean, she was a massive part of dragging them out of the relegation zone. I mean, even from the first game already starting to slot home goals and... You know, Spurs could be doing a lot better if she had better deliveries coming in, but she doesn't. Uh, the Spurs, there's, there's still a lot of like inconsistency and incohesion with the Spurs squad. But yeah, I mean, she was an, an attacking firepower. She has done her absolute best. So I think she was right to to get that opportunity for for the call up because she couldn't have set out a stand any better for Weekman. So I'm, um, yeah, I, I don't think there should be any surprise at all, personally. It's quite a risk, right? Because she she dropped down to Spurs, who were in a relegation battle for a long part of the season, right? 
I think it was a risk in the sense that she could have ended up as being one of the most expensive championship players, um, <laughs> but not so much a risk in the sense that she knew that she was going to go across and get game time. I mean, she was a massive, a massive fish in a quite small sort of Spurs pond. Um, so I think for her, that move across would have only been made had she already spoken to management and the team and said, well, I'm going to be getting starting minutes. Otherwise, there's nowhere, nowhere on earth I'm going across the Spurs to sit on the bench because she's above that. Mm. Yeah. And she was scoring about a goal a game towards the end of the season, right, which is the form that has got it into this squad. So presumably another member of the squad who can be on the bench, who can come off and change things, right? Yeah, I think the lots of the com- confusion, maybe, or not confusion, but surprise came from the fact that Viebman had, you know, really stuck to her guns on not picking her. She'd last gone to an England camp in, in September. And then even after the move didn't, you know, make even the April camp where even though she'd been scoring like nonstop and ever and Viegman had previously said before, you know, Beth needs to play minutes, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there are a couple of players like that as well. You know, Katie Zellum, I think, someone who also kind of felt, well, because I wasn't called up for in April, um, but maybe someone who benefited from that Williamson injury, you know, feeling like Williamson was someone who could cover in defence and midfield and therefore needing another midfielder to come in. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been interesting to see because Viegman has a reputation for being quite stubborn. And I think that's why lots of people thought, well, if she's decided she doesn't want Beth England as part of her squad, which seems to be the case, then you know, maybe she won't, maybe she'll ignore ignore the goal scoring. Because also, to, to a certain extent, I mean, I would have always taken Beth England, but you can always make the argument of like, okay, she scores a lot for Tottenham, but everything goes through her and they play in an incredibly direct way and I'm not interested in my striker playing like that. I think that would have been a foolish argument, but it's not an impossible argument for someone to make. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Who are the other players who are going to have to turn up if England are going to do well? I mean, all of them. (laughs) Um, I think Mary Earps, obviously she had an absolutely killer tournament, um, you know, picking up FIFA best goalkeeper. Uh, I mean, I absolutely personally love her to pieces and goalkeeper union. Um, (laughs) But I do think, I think, because our defensive line is a lot different from how it was last year. Obviously, we've got Greenwood coming in. It was a very experienced defender. I mean, I don't have any massive concerns about her. We still don't know whether Bright's going to be in that opening game or not. She's definitely not going to be playing on Saturday. So still some kind, and that's that's not a long period of time to go from, I mean, the last minute she got were back in April. So to go from not playing since April to like maybe starting for the, the Haiti game, I, I'm not too sure whether that's in her. Jess Carter, I think she has good games. I don't, I think there's still some things, like still some tweaks that need to be made. And then potentially also Esme Morgan, I think as a, you know one of the youngest players in, in that defensive back line. And given how things kind of went with the last game with Australia, I think there were so many errors that we made at the back. We looked shaky. We looked a little bit kind of, scared of ourselves so I think that's where someone like Mary Earps not just in terms of the shot stopping ability if things are coming you know into her but also in terms of that presence that confidence like she's such a big character got such a big personality and I think she's going to be needing to be very vocal a big presence to make sure that she's rallying that back line to make sure they're doing what what they should so yeah I think um defensively it's um I feel a little bit nervous. You're freaking yourself out, I can say. (laughs) A little bit. Like, I feel a little bit angsty. But, like, I know that Mary Earps is, like, the last line of defence. And that, for me, feels quite confidence-inspiring. So, Mm. yeah, Earpsy. What about in terms of the forward positions? Who do you think has to really get the things things moving for England? I think, actually, the the two players who will be really interesting to look at are the two midfielders in Kira Walsh and George Stanway. Because for all of the anxiety around England's potential starting 11 Walsh and Stanway are two players who did play for all of the Euros look great in the Euros and only went on to have better seasons at the back of it and and improve I think you know Walsh obviously went to Barcelona in this record-breaking move Stanway to Bayern Munich and I think both of them have really benefited from from going and playing in different footballing environments and they're coming into their peak years this is probably what you would say is their their peak world cup although you know equally they're both still you know in their mid-20s so so there's more to come but I feel like they're two players who have the experience of having played at the Euros you know Kira Walsh has just won a Champions League as well they're the players who I think England need to look to step up into those kind of leadership roles like what Chloe was referring to earlier um maybe in the past we've kind of looked at other players and Walsh and Stanway felt like 
some of the the kids in the squad but that's that's not the case anymore you know these are really top players who've shown in european competition in international competition that that they can be the very best and i think if england can get the most out of those two um they could have a really good tournament serena Wiegmann has come in and won 30 out of 31 games with England and the loss came as you've already mentioned against Australia that was the most recent game although there is a game being played this weekend uh, at the time of recording so that will I think have happened before this recording comes out but that's obviously a remarkable run of of games Um, is there a sense in which this is the that was the sort of best case scenario that could have happened and how does that impact the expectations of of how this England team should perform? Um, I think a lot of people were freaking out after that loss um, because we'd gone so many games unbeaten. I think the expectation was there that we would... It was a game on paper that we should have won. Um, But at the same time, I think a lot of people were then saying, "Okay, well, now we've got rid of the bogeyman. Like we at some point we were going to have to lose a game. We can't just indefinitely go on as the Lionesses for the rest of our time um, on the planet, (laughs) not having lost a game ever. So I think it would have been nice, though. It would have been amazing. (laughs) Yeah. For me to have passed away knowing that the Lionesses have won 3000 games in that time would be amazing. But at the same time, that was bound to happen. And I think, um, you know, they did need a bit of not humbling, but I think the opinion needed to be humbled a little bit. We are not you know going to steamroller every you know game we're going to come up against different challenges I mean someone like Sam Kerr you know you're playing against the best of the best there so you do need to have a bit of an appreciation that there's super talent out there that can can unpick you and we did so the timing of it yeah obviously not too great like it being the last game that you played up until this game on on Saturday and thank god we got the game on Saturday to maybe rectify things put things right you know get some cohesion with this kind of new looking squad um, but at the same time, I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not particularly concerned. I think. I think we needed to do that. Yeah. With that in mind, then let's start talking about the expectations around where England should finish in this in this tournament. No one really wants to talk about this, obviously. But um, can we just talk a little bit about the potential route that England have? Because it's quite a tricky run potentially to the final, right? Yeah, England are definitely in the tougher half of the the bracket. And I think as we come on to talk about other potential favourites, there are certain teams who are going to benefit from being on the opposite side. Um, the the potential of kind of playing a Canada or Australia uh, straight off the bat in the knockout rounds and then potentially a Germany or a France or a Brazil in the quarterfinals, it's, I just think if England are going to reach the final of the World Cup they're going to play three really really tough knockout games and I think in kind of recent World Cups England have done quite well in you know I feel like this luck always like comes around depending on who who you have to play England will feel that they can beat anyone in the world because they've shown over the past year or so 18 months that they can beat anyone in the world Um, but I do wonder what the toll will be on the players potentially if you okay the group's not the hardest group in the world necessarily but obviously you want to get through it you want to make sure nothing goes wrong but to then have to play you know three potentially games back to back that are really tough to even look at then playing in a final when other teams maybe have an easier round of 16 game where they can get stuff done quicker they can relax you know if you're if you're potentially winning those games 3-0 like England have done in in previous world cups I think that's that's where the the trickiness will come in. No, I was going to say, in the, um, I mean, when you sort of look at the matchups that we've had, so, you know, you're talking there about, you know, Canada, Brazil, you know, um, Australia, America. I mean, against the US, we obviously won our last game. Against Brazil, we won our last game, but it was tight as hell. Uh, Australia, we lost that game. Um, so I think um, there's this kind of, you'd, obviously you can't base everything on what's going to happen in the future based on the, the previous results. But I mean, as Jesse was saying, like the matchups that we've had, we've shown that we can take apart these teams mm. by fine margins sometimes, but but they are there. I think the Australia game, yeah, it, it sort of unsettled us a bit, but I'm not expecting that, you know, we're going to come unstuck too much with these squads. I could be eating my words. I, this is This could age very badly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tournament football, right? So you can always lose to any of these teams, but at the same time, as you're saying, like, this should be a level of confidence that you know England have challenged these these teams in recent history and, and and that's something to take away so in terms of where they should get and where they will get would you like to like to put your money where your mouth is I am saying final I think we we are of a, a good enough quality to get to the final that's my I'm not saying we'll win I think we have a good chance at winning but I think final
Yeah, I def- I'm very torn. There's <laughs> like, my heart says final. My head says mm, potentially quarterfinals. Quarterfinal? <laughs> I just think it really depends on how other groups work out, who gets in where, how England look. I think what I guess we've kind of both touched on already is that the levels within women's football at the moment feel very, very tight as in there's lots of very good teams and I just think those margin that's why I just feel like I can see it going either way I could see England go out in the round of 16 I could see them win just because of the teams that they're going to come up against there are teams that they can beat yes but there are also teams that that can beat them and that's why I think this World Cup's actually so fascinating and and potentially the most exciting especially in what is the the bottom half of the draw because those, those margins are going to be so small well, let's talk about some of the other teams because if England do make it to the final, then their likely reward is that they will be playing against the USA. Um, obviously, anything can happen on that side of the draw as well, but USA are the de facto favourites, right? Massively. I mean, going into this tournament, you've only got to look at the, the ridiculous amount of press and marketing. Their campaign has just been... Um, I mean, they're not a team to do sort of like the humble side of things. They're a team who's <laughs> going to go in hard. They're going to get, you know, the president of the United States. They're going to get Taylor Swift. They're going to get every celebrity on the planet to plug how amazing they're going to do. Um, you know, this is a big thing for them. that They're going to be seeking their third straight World Cup title. Um, and I think, um, you know, you've got all these big names. You've got Alex Morgan. You've got, you know, Megan Rapino. You've got, well, obviously, they're, they're, you know, the, the captain situation is not too great at the moment, but... I just think they're they're such an exciting squad to watch and they're just they're machines and I think um you know obviously our last match up with them we were fortunate enough to win that and I think that will instill some confidence there but that is going to be a match up and a half I mean that is a final that I want to see yeah yeah as you're saying that they they are the 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 team who are the current holders of the World Cup they have been back-to-back champions so they won in 2015 as well as 2019 um, so they're looking for a third straight World Cup and a fifth overall so definitely the sort of traditional favourites right yeah definitely although I feel like the gap is kind of closer than not maybe it's ever been because I do think those you know the the, the World Cups they won in the 90s it's funny because they have become something that was part of the dynasty but when you go back and watch those games <laughs> they were obviously a lot tighter than maybe they feel now when we think oh they're going to win a potentially a fifth World Cup um, I think what will be interesting though is you know they do have a different manager since the the last time they won in Vlatko Andonovsky he had a bit of a disappointing Olympics, which was kind of his first major tournament. They they only won bronze, uh, but in the USA, that's that's a disappointing Olympics. And it's been interesting because there's been a lot of kind of consternation around maybe the way the US play under him and and what that looks like. They've struggled, I think, to make a their midfield really work. But they've been had a massive boost by having Julie Ertz come back in. Um, she kind of like mops up everything for them and is a bit like just like a bullet train like around around the pitch I think that's a big boost but then obviously yeah the the injuries is going to be is going to be tough I think for them to deal with and I just think it'll be interesting to see how Andonovsky specifically deals with the pressure because the expectation is high and if there's wobbles early on I think it could get very intense for him very quickly Mm. and of course we need to talk about injuries again because I think the US have had a a huge amount of uh, injuries in their squad as well right Oh, I mean, it's a. It feels like a global pandemic at the moment. Um, yeah, obviously their captain being out, we've got a captain out, so I suppose we're quite evenly matched in that respect, which is bizarre if we do reach a final with both of our original captains not there. Um, Sam Lewis, uh, Mallory Swanson, um, Katerina Macario, uh, who's obviously coming over, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, I think um, that it, uh, the ACL thing. I mean, it, we talk about it time and time again, but it's it's moments like this that you appreciate just how impactful they can be because injuries to key players like and significant players like these are the game changers these players so you know they affect how tournaments can go and I think it's not only the impact on the player but it's you know you you affect the competitiveness of a competition like this which makes it a different product to watch if you, you if you're without a squad you know with some of your key people but yeah I think it's um you know we've been impacted in the same way so the the level it's kind of a level playing field in a way with the injuries if we do reach a a final yeah yeah and it's worth saying that we do have plenty of content about uh, particularly ACL injuries on both the Athletic and TIFO as well so if anyone is interested in finding out more about that then do check those things out but let's talk a little bit about the key players for the US so who are the players that you think are going to have to perform well for them Jesse? 
Yeah, well, I think Ertz is definitely one who who will be the standout because she can she can really make things tick. And then I think the thing that will be interesting to see for the US is how they sort of bring in some of these younger players who who are coming through. Um, Alice Thompson's made a lot of headlines for being incredibly ridiculously young and making making the World Cup squad. Uh, but Trinity Rodman is maybe the one who will be more interesting to watch if, if she does start. Sophia Smith as well playing a slightly different role potentially for the US than she does for the Portland Thorns where she normally plays as a central striker but I think Alex Morgan will be the striker and Sophia Smith might be used out wide um, but it is a bit of a changing of the guard for the US you know in terms of the familiar names yes Rapinoe's in the squad but there's no Heath there's no press um, neither of them are fit but I don't know if they'd have made it even if they were uh, is, the, is the reality of it so the USA are always going to be like a massive talent factory. Like there's there's no doubt, but it's going to be interesting to see how these younger players, also players who've, who've grown up really in in awe, I guess, of like what the US have, have done. You know, earlier generations of, of US players, obviously I think have, have that kind of American mentality as, as we and I think they see it of like you win no matter what. But it'll be interesting to see what it's like for the younger players who, you know, like the they won't necessarily have even been born when the 99ers won, which is obviously seen as this big turning point in for, for women's football in America and football in America. Mm. Yeah, and the US first 11 that's going to come out in their first game is going to look very different from the team that started even in the last tournament, right? So it's very much a sort of new era for... Massively, people. but yeah. I think you've still got those kind of like, like I mean, like Jesse was saying, you've still got those key figureheads in and about the squad. So even though they might not have been a part of the squad through injury um, and might not have been picked in any event because they were sort of getting on if you want um, you've still got kind of like Rose Lavelle there you've still got Alex Morgan you've still got these people who have seen so much of the US women's national team history and I think they're going to be key in kind of rallying around the younger players the players who you know don't have this major international tournament experience and, and also the pressure is on those younger players they want to continue the legacy that those players have created so yeah, it's going to be um, it's going to be a tough one for the youngsters. Yeah, there's there's a lot right on their shoulders, and especially more so since the the US have gone so massively overboard with hyping themselves up. And I just think that's um, you know, you've got a you've got an alpha fill the expectation, <laughs> so you've you've put that pressure on yourselves. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about some other teams. So Australia, um, I'm interested in whether or not you think that they're going to get um, any home field advantage from from playing in this World Cup. Do you think they're, they're going to be uh, sort of, I mean, they're obviously a very good side and they and they recently beat England, as we said. Do you think that they're going to get a huge amount of momentum from playing at home? I think so. Um, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm around this Australia team. They're a very popular side. Uh, they're a very recognisable side, both domestically and internationally. And we saw with, with the Euros last year how much, you know, home advantage can can really help teams. My concern for them is they do run a bit hot and cold because, yes, they beat England, but a couple of days before that, they lost to Scotland. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, there's there's different levels to, to this Australia team. I think Tony Gustafsson is a very clever coach. And I think, you know, this really is the the culmination of his, his time as, as Australia manager, which has had high points and low points. Um, listen, for me, Sam Kerr's the best striker in the world and if you're going to have the best striker in the world in your team you're always going to have a pretty good shot at these things um I think even beyond that you've seen Caitlin Ford have a really good season for Arsenal uh they've got exciting young midfielders in Mary Fowler and Kyra Cooney Cross who have been brought into this team in a really intelligent way I think in for, from Gustafsson you know going and playing in the Olympics for Australia so they've got that international tournament experience ahead of this World Cup so there's I think a lot of focus for Australia that maybe this is like the golden generation in terms of like Kerr, Ford, Rasso, Kennedy their best chance at you know doing really well in a tournament but I think there are exciting young players as well who, who are coming to this team who they want to make their mark at home as well. Yeah, Jessie's mentioned that Australia can can sort of blow hot and cold. And she's also mentioned that um, there's the, um, Sam Kerr as the best striker in the world. Are those two things related in any way? Is it the case that you, you are, if you are reliant upon your star player performing, there's going to be some games where you are a little bit disappoint, disappointing in? Well, I think any any side that's going to be facing Australia is going to know that Sam Kerr is the absolute key target for, you know, taking her out of the game. And I don't mean, you know, literally taking her out of the game, but just like marking the absolute life out of her uh, or preventing the deliveries coming across to her. I think, you know, depending on what type of squad it is and depending on the setup and how, you know, the formation that they have, a lot of that is probably going to be based around, you know, trying to get Sam Kerr out of the picture. 
Um, so I think it depends on, you know, squads, the success that Australia is going to have, I think, is largely dependent on, you know, the deliveries to Samka, how they can kind of, you know, change the game scenarios, change up, um, you know, the, the sort of different passages of play and kind of work around anything that, you know, teams are coming at you with because, yeah, every every single team that faces Australia is, is going to say, just make sure it doesn't get to Kerr. Mm. Yeah. We've got a couple of teams now who are, have a lot of drama surrounding them. Uh, we've already mentioned France. France seem to have a penchant for drama every time a, an international <laughs> tournament swings around. Um, we were talking about this for the Euros as well. So Corinne Diacre was was quite a controversial figure um, and and had um, had prompted, I guess, uh, almost a mutiny within the ranks that has seen her, her move on. And uh, as you said, have Renard is the is the new head coach, um, which is exciting because he's had a, a career in, in men's international football. It's nice to see him moving into the, the women's game, like have a, a really big name like that coming in. What impact do you think that's going to have for France? Um, well, obviously, I mean, like you said, they went through so much unsettling. They went through a massively unsettling experience. And I think, um, you know, when you do have a position where things aren't right, you, you don't trust in the management, you don't think they're going to get you. I mean, they didn't, they kind of, not underperformed for the Euros, but I think people were expecting them to do a little bit more. They're a side that very much come out in the first half and sort of give everything and give give their all. And in the second half, it just feels like a sort of limp firework and they just sort of go out and you need know, to ride out the first half and hopefully you'll win the game. And I think, um, you know, there was some obviously big names, you know, coming out and saying, we're not going to play under Corinne Diacre. We don't like the way that she manages. She's um, not particularly nice. Uh, I think that's putting it mildly, I suppose. <laughs> um and I think now there's a lot of, you know, Heather Renard's come in. He's got a lot of experience in the men's and the women's game. I think he's, um, I think he's going to consolidate them. I think a lot of the squads obviously come back. They're obviously happy with with that decision that's been made. So I'm expecting big things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose the question has to be asked whether or not people are underestimating how good France are because they've had that unrest in previous tournaments. Do you think that this is really going to release the shackles and they're going to come and, and be a, one of the teams to beat in this tournament? I'm. I'm not sure. I think France's defence is still pretty horrible. And there's there's kind of two ways you can look at this, right? Either you say Renard is clearly a very experienced coach who's done massive things on the international stage with teams with less talent, realistically, than what the French women's national team has. Um, but at the same time, he's got a very short amount of time to prepare. Maybe that means you say, OK, France are going to be this kind of unknown quantity. And I definitely think that's potentially a factor. But you've also got this thing, and, and we'll talk about this maybe a bit with Spain as well, where suddenly you're reintegrating all of these players. And there's obviously this kind of public happiness that not only are players like uh, Wendy Renard, no relation, <laughs> and... Um, Kadijutu uh, Diani coming back into the team when they said they wouldn't play under Diacre. You've also got players who Diacre had frozen out, like Amandine Henri and Eugenie Le Sommer. The thing that will be interesting is how much of those players used. I feel like Henri is definitely someone who I'm like, yes, put her in the midfield regardless. Le Sommer, I don't know if I feel quite the same way about, and it'll be interesting to see what Renard does with bringing these players on side. They're also still missing Marie-Antoinette Cototo, who did her ACL during the Euros, and I think that's a really big blow because that's that's for me as a player who who can win you games potentially and I just don't know if France have those real like game winners in their squad anymore well let's talk about you've mentioned Spain let's talk about them now can you talk us through the missing the missing 15 players and, and what that was all about Yes, well, some of the 15 players have been found now, so that's good. Um, yeah, basically, in September, uh, 15 players wrote a letter to the Spanish Federation saying they, they didn't want to play under Jorge Vilda anymore, uh, and they also just felt like they weren't very well supported from the Spanish Federation. This had come after Irena Paredes and Jenny Hermoso, who were part of like the captain's team, had had private conversations with him, which hadn't got anywhere. Uh, the Spanish Federation basically said, no, we're like sticking by Vilda, uh, sort of the opposite of what the France Federation did with Diac. Um, and this has kind of led to a standoff where France had play uh, Spain had played without those 15 players for this year. And then as the World Cup has come along, we've kind of seen what I guess you would refer to maybe as like union busting techniques from the, the Spanish Federation as they've sort of gradually tried to get certain players back. Uh, now, some players have come back um, because they 
decided that it was more important for them to go to the World Cup, I guess, than uh, protest against his manager they supposedly hated a couple of months ago. Some players asked to come back and Vilda said, no, I don't want you back, which is probably the most embarrassing of the positions <laughs> you could end up in. Uh, and three players said they, they wouldn't come back regardless. Uh, so there's been a lot of upheaval. It will be really interesting to see how Spain deal with that. They've also spent a year playing without a whole chunk of the players who've now come back into the squad. If I was one of the players who turned up I'd, and then didn't get into the squad, I'd be pretty pissed off personally. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely going to be an interesting one because Vilda also, he can be quite a vindictive manager. And I think even for the players who've come back in, it'll be interesting to see how he reacts to some of them and how much they get used. Yeah, so I, I think that would be an interesting one to, to see how it plays out. But um, Spain on the pitch going to be a good side do you think I mean when you have a look at this squad list I mean every time I look at the Spain squad list I'm, I, it's just glittering uh, I mean just at the back the back even just having on a badge I think that, yeah, that's huge uh, and I'm wildly annoyed that Manchester United have let her go to, to Barcelona I know that's obviously like you know where she wanted to go back to but you know Alexia Pateas is going to be the big one uh, don't know sort of how much game time she's going to get initially obviously just coming back now starting to get a couple of minutes under her belt we missed her out last time round didn't we so I feel like we deserve it this time round is that I feel yeah. so bad for her obviously like she just picked up the ACL literally on yeah. the eve of the tournament um, in, for the Euros so it'll be interesting to see sort of the impact that she's had but also Spain have you know and Barcelona have been doing so well without her like you know a lot of the Barcelona squad, like, squad are still in the Spain are in the Spain squad so you know they've, they've been used to an entire year without Pateas and still absolutely smashed the league so you know but you still look at players like I mean I'm just I don't even know which ones to choose I've got the squad list <laughs> in front of me I'm like Jenny Hermosa you've got um I mean I just where do you even where do you even go I just um you know Bon Matty like I just these players are just they're stellar they're absolutely stellar so I think even though with the unrest with Jorge Vilder and I do think that it has been an absolute I do think it's a bit embarrassing that some of the players have returned. They were so kind of against the management and what the manager was about and, you know, how, you know, horrible he'd been to them. And then now sort of, you know, thinking, OK, well, now I'm just going to jump back into the squad because the World Cup. So I think it does look a little bit weak from a player kind of, you know, you've used your platform in such a positive way. And then to kind of go back on it now, you've, you've it, it doesn't set the right tone for me. But at the same time, I mean, we're going to be expecting big things from them. You can't not with the squad that's that talented. But when you don't have someone at the helm who you respect, if you're not doing it for a manager, like someone like Wiegmann, the players gather around her, they respect her, they want to do well for her because she is their figurehead, their leader. But, you know, you don't have that with, with Jorge. So I don't think they're, um, I don't, I don't think it's going to be their, their year. I, I can't yeah. see them in the final for sure. It's also interesting because in terms of the way the Spanish Federation have backed Jorge Vilda is, is whether he feels any pressure around it because Spain have like repeatedly underperformed on the international stage relative to the amount of talent they've got and I would imagine the same thing will happen in this World Cup but he seems to be untouchable so does he care if they go out in the round of 16 or the, the quarterfinals because is his job actually under threat on if that happens because given you know the quality of players and, and the quality of players who, who aren't going to be there you know for me Mappi Leon she won't be there she's one of the best centre-backs in the world Patrick Iaro she's probably the best holding midfielder in the world so the Spanish Federation are happy to have those players not be part of their squad because they think Vilda is basically worth more than them I guess you would say but Will that actually affect then how they play at the World Cup? I don't know. I think he's invincible. I don't think he'll leave. He'll, he'll never leave, and <laughs> like they won't do well, and he'll just carry on in his post. Yeah, it does seem to be putting the <laughs> cart before the horse, right? If the if the team is going to suffer from having him in, in the position, then it does seem strange to keep him in the position. But um, that's we should... women's football. <laughs> You're never surprised. Yeah. Well, I mean, on that note, we should move from the on pitch. Uh, controversies to the off-pitch controversies because there are many of those as well but Chloe you've already mentioned the, the TV and commercial rights issues that have been surrounding this this World Cup could you just talk to us a little bit about about some of those issues? I think um, well the issues kind of started like in the months leading up so, like we've obviously got now that the BBC and the ITV deal which is amazing uh, but it's just been the kind of process in getting there and why it's been so 
late in the day so you know I don't think anyone's going to notice or they'll probably notice the lack of um, you know there being adverts about it on TV there being any kind of like posters around it from BBC ITV sort of displaying what's what's actually happening I think it's been like the quietest build up to a major international women's tournament in the UK that I've known for quite some time and that's before we even hit the eve and the advent of women's football kind of exploding on and attracting so much attention so yeah there's still I think it's Japan who still have the sort of unresolved um, TV rights but I think the whole issue was that you know basically we were submitting bids over to, to FIFA they weren't having any of it because they were like okay well you're completely undervaluing the product that's that's you know that that's going to be on display here there's so much international incredible talent now um, and Infantino sort of weirdly taking a quite moral approach to the whole thing saying that you know he's not going to undervalue it he wants people to step up their bids for it and I weirdly feel like that is a fair comment to make but at the same time it's difficult because it's the first like proper year that the rights the tv rights with the the men's and the women's game have been completely separated so it's um it's a bit of a hot mess really but I think that's the most annoying thing about it is that it's taken so long and it's been so late in the day and there was periods of time where we just thought it wasn't going to be broadcast and for those players who are sort of you know relying on the exposure relying on you know here to increase women's football to not have anything in the lead up to the tournament is absolute madness um but yeah I can understand maybe why it's not attracted the same kind of value that it would in other years because the tournament is going to be shown at quite ridiculous times really for for us it's going to be like eight o'clock like breakfast tournaments which I think is quite nice actually I think a lot of um, companies I've heard of are you know doing like breakfast work meetings and stuff around the lionesses and so I think it's it creates a different atmosphere but Mm. yeah it's it's madness Mm. and the reality is is that if you can sort out these deals and get them I mean it's so much of actually raising the profile of women's football is about having the product out there so people can see so it's clearly an important aspect of the World Cup to to actually raise the profile of the game yeah obviously and you know you've got to be able to watch it on telly especially if it's in Australia and it's not like you can pop across to to see it I think the the frustrating thing is it feels so classic FIFA in that they've undervalued the women's game for years and years and suddenly they turn around and say, actually, we want you to give us loads of money for it. And I think, kind of think it's fair for the broadcasters to go, well, you know, wait a minute, like for years you've bundled it up with this thing. You told us it wasn't worth anything and then we just get it all along and now suddenly you want even more money than we're offering. It's quite clearly a, a ridiculous... And, you know, when it's FIFA, you're just like, oh, what, I wonder why they want more money. For, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that's all going to the good of the women's game. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously it's it's good it's been sorted out. And, and I hope if, if England do well that it could be kind of fun because the 2002 World Cup is like one of my like favourite footballing memories because I'd go into primary school to like watch all the games in the morning. And I do think there's an extent where it, it can become potentially a more memorable tournament when it's got that slight like time difference thing. So hopefully now it's been sorted out, people will all have fun and, you know, who doesn't want to get the pints in at nine o'clock in July? That's what I said. <laughs> Absolutely. I know, I've not thought about that aspect, actually. It's like, like pints at the airport type vibes. <laughs> Um, we started off this podcast talking about some of the, the pressures on some of the teams because there's less money in the, the women's game uh, and the fact that some of the federations are a little bit behind the curve compared to others as well. And you mentioned the Jamaica women's team. Could you talk to us a little bit about some of the issues surrounding them? Because they've had, I think that I believe they've had, you know, various sort of logistical issues and, and, and it can be a, a huge undertaking to get a team like that to the World Cup and, and, and sorted out, right? Yeah, massively. I think um, so. About, it's about two weeks ago or so, um, there was a collective post, an Instagram post that was sent out by all the members of the Jamaican national women's team. And um, the post basically said that, you know, the Federation weren't providing certain things. They didn't go into specific detail, but it was just sort of generally that, you know, things weren't happening, that they'd made all these complaints, they'd spoken to the Federation, nothing was being done. The Federation didn't care, didn't want to listen. Um, and it seemed to be around sort of issues relating to yeah, transport, accommodation, training conditions, that kind of thing. And it's not the first time that they've raised issues about it. It has been a long-standing, you know, uh, long-running thing. And uh, obviously, this is their, their second time in the in the Women's World Cup, and it's been amazing for them to you know to get to this stage. Um, but at the same time, the players now have sort of gone quite quiet. Things have kind of just taken a bit of a backseat, and I'm not too sure what the kind of vibe is, whether there's ongoing positive conversations happening, the Federation have actually been embarrassed into acting, or whether these issues are still quite live. And I get the impression um, that the issues are, in fact, very much still alive. Um, despite the players not speaking, I've, I've, even this morning we started to see a couple of... Um, fundraisers pop up for the Jamaican women's national team one of them from one of the players herself like her mum one of the players mum's 
made a fundraiser. Um, I think it's currently on about 40,000 Jamaican uh, Jamaican dollars. Um, and the, the post specifically says it is for things like travel, for you know food for the players, for accommodation, which makes me think that the Federation don't have these things in place. And bearing in mind we're now two and a half weeks away from the opening games of this competition and the first game that you're playing is against France it concerns me a fair bit <laughs> apart from the fact that flights are so expensive now because it's this late in the day and seats are, are selling out um, that we won't actually see any of the squad there because the Federation don't have these things in place and unless they can raise enough money themselves to do that which is the most ridiculous position to be in I mean this is a squad that's sponsored by Adidas and this is their second time in this competition and they consistently do better than the men's Jamaican national team it just it shocks me but also doesn't shock me that this that this kind of thing is still happening so it's ongoing I think more will come out the closer we get to the tournament and things don't aren't, aren't resolved yeah I want to talk about the future of the women's game just before we we close I'm hyper aware of the fact that whenever something like this happens we always have to talk about legacy and everything becomes super meaningful um, but I suppose at the end of the day this is as we've said, it's about raising the profile of the women's game. And uh, in many respects, that's the most important thing here. So just wondered what the two of you thought about what the legacy of this tournament will be on a, on a, on a maybe on a slightly more meta scale than just, you know, X, Y, or Z team wins. What do you want to see coming out of this tournament in terms of the actual material conditions changing and, and the, the profile of the women's game actually being, being raised? Yeah, I think what I'd say I'd want to see kind of off the back of, of what Chloe's talked about and some of the other issues we've talked about for teams is a recognition that for all that women's football has made amazing progress in inverted commas, um, loads of federations across the world still treat their women's teams like they're just a bit of crap on their shoe. And they will repeatedly put um, themselves ahead of promoting women's football or supporting women to do well in football even though it feels like the most bizarre thing to do if you're a national federation to, to not support your team but you know whether it's the actual material conditions or whether it's you know when we're talking about managers who have been widely complained about but will be kept in jobs you know there are so many countries going into this world cup who have serious serious issues that have been raised throughout the year we haven't even, even talked about canada who you know they threatened to go on strike earlier and the federation said we'll sue you if you do that you know like there are so many teams and players who are basically being hindered in their ability to move forward as a result of the federation. And I think part of this problem also comes down to the fact that we talk about women's football in terms of linear progress. And I think we repeatedly see that that is, that is not the case. You know, there are... There have been World Cup tournaments before where you've had these amazing sold-out stadiums, massive crowds, then you get World Cups where, like, no one really goes. And that's, that's a problem because you're not building on something then. And I think so much of the issues that come out is there's not necessarily the focus on what happens to these women's teams when there isn't a massive World Cup tournament. You know, it's only then that we hear about it. And I think that really hinders the ability for these teams to put together, you know, kind of sustain pressure for their federation to do differently because the world's only paying attention once every four years. So I think something that I would like to see come out of this World Cup is this more global recognition that allows players to hold their federations to account so because at the moment it's these federations aren't embarrassed by what's coming out about them and that is a real issue i mean nailed it yeah i i mean there's very little to add to what jesse said i think um there is this kind of you know you can kind of wash over the fact that because you know the tournament has gone really well that we've got these like sellout stadiums that you've got these broadcast deals coming in that you get to see all these big names that actually you forget that there is so many underlying issues still amongst and we're not even just talking about sort of federations who would just come into the competition for the first time we're talking about your canada's your spains like these are you know these are not these are well like these are olympic gold medal woolen squads that we're still having issues with so it is like a top to bottom situation but you know just to sort of echo what, what Jesse was saying I mean we just had the FIFA uh, the FIFA Pro qualifying conditions report come out uh, a couple of weeks back and it, I mean they surveyed 360 players from you know all the competitions across all the kind of federations and it, it was coming out that 40% of those players didn't even recognise that they were um, elite athletes and that is madness that you're still in a situation where you've got to take time off of work you're still not being paid at all by your federation you you know have to quit your studies or you don't have like the correct access to you know rehab recovery pitch space whatever it is and this is still happening and it's 2023 so I think it is um, more awareness about some of the issues um, you know around 
the sort of the teams that are just coming freshly to the competition mm. and also the bigger teams who are still having issues because um, player welfare I think for, for me is key so yeah more awareness around that more than you know the highlighting the key positive things that have happened for the tournament and also exposure as well like it is obviously I don't want to like absolutely shit <laughs> on the success of this Women's World Cup I mean I can't un- appreciate the amount of planning and things that have gone into you know hosting a tournament across two countries but also I think yeah an appreciation that things are still not okay I think it's so easy isn't it to look at the men's game and see the the levels of professionalism that are there and just assume that they, that, that equality exists across every part of the the women's game and it's just very much not the case so yeah it's it's great to see some of these things coming out and hopefully more being done about it in the future but rather than ending on 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 a heavy negative i thought it would be nice to end with just a, a few um, predictions from from you guys so Let's talk about the winner first. I think we've touched on a lot, a lot of the favourites. So, gut feeling in terms of who the winning winner is going to be, Chloe? Uh, the lionesses, but I don't feel completely confident <laughs> about that view. If I'm being frank, I sound a bit more excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that it's very guarded lionesses view. Yeah, I'm going for lionesses. I find it hard to look past the US, which is really annoying because I don't even think they're that good. Um, don't throw it out there. I just <laughs> think that side of the draw looks really really nice for them and the ability to kind of potentially breeze through some knockout rounds and get to the final whoever they then meet in the final I think they'll have a big advantage over in, in terms of any dark horses who would you would you have anyone lined up for that one I would potentially say Brazil I think they're a very talented squad Pierre Santaga is no mug when it comes to management we saw in the finalissima against England that they can cause problems um, Carolyn who is a a forward who can play all across the front of the tackling line is really she's she's at North Carolina Courage at the moment but lots of European teams are interested in her so she's probably one to watch as well you've also got Marta playing in her last World Cup too um, I don't think it will be her last World Cup <laughs> I think she'll just continue uh, playing what is it fifth, she, fifth one she claims uh, sixth World sixth Cup one. yeah so, crazy yeah. So I, I think Brazil could be a team potentially, if the, especially if France maybe aren't as organised under Ronaldo as you expect and they could top that group. They could be one to watch. Chloe? Uh, I think Australia. I think um, they're ranked 10th. Uh, so obviously not the kind of fav- all and out favourites, but I do think they do have the home advantage. Sam Kerr is on her, you know, the absolute form of her life. Um, I think they're going to be probably boosted by the fact that they did, they were the last people to, you know, crush out unbeaten epic run um so i do think yeah they could be the the dark horses if you if you will mm. for a host nation what about the team that you think will be the biggest disappointment spain yeah i think like i said before i think like the talent they've got they should be absolutely ripping apart competitions like this they should be a surefire favorite for semi-final if not a final spot but i think given the kind of incohesion that they have with what's gone on this past year with the fact that they're fighting for a manager that none of them like or really care about and want removed i think it's going to have a massive impact on them so i i think we're going to see them look quite disjointed which we kind of did see a little bit in the euros so um yeah i think they're going to be i don't think they're going to do well yeah i would agree but i'd also say sweden will be potentially a disappointment i think it's interesting that we haven't even mentioned them today whereas you know in past years you would have put them up there as a favorite and i think the reality is their squad's kind of aging out they haven't had younger players come through they've got a lot of players who can sometimes look great sometimes not look great they obviously had that embarrassment against england in the semi-final of the euros and i think Maybe they won't be a disappointment because, you know, we're not even talking about them today. But I think when we potentially when we take a step back and, and look at how in past years they would be someone who would be like, yeah, you'd expect them to be in the final. I wonder if, you know, it will feel, it'll feel like a bit of a watershed moment for them as a squad. We've not really talked about players outside of the uh, US and England squads in particular. But beyond those two squads, who do you think are going to be the, the players of the tournament? We'll start with you, Jesse. Yeah, there's a there's a couple who I'm I'm looking forward to seeing. I think. I'm very intrigued about Norway and how they look. And there's a couple of players there. Obviously, there's the big names in Caroline Graham Hansen, Ada Hegerberg, but Guru Wrighton and Frieda Marnham are two players who finished in basically everyone's best players in the WSL this, this year. And how they do at the World Cup could, again, coming off the back of a very disappointing Euros, could be really interesting. Another one I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing is Myra Ramirez, who plays for Colombia. Uh, really, really like her. She plays for Levante, attacking player, 14 goals, 11 assists in Liga FA last year and Colombia have a, like a couple of fun players and I think they I don't I don't think they're gonna you know like trouble to get out of the group stages but 
I think Myra Ramirez is one of those players that we're talking about when we're get, having bigger World Cups, smaller teams coming into it. She's someone who I'm like, that girl is like so much fun to watch, and it's really cool to get her see it to see her do it on a global stage. Mm. Um, I think for me, kind of one of the, the who I anticipate is going to be a standout player. I mean, she already is. I mean, Gura Wrighton for sure. She's been absolutely doing the business for Chelsea. Like the deliveries, the assists, it's just absolutely crazy, and also goal scoring ability. And she's just such a little like whip it. I just I think she's going to cause absolute havoc. Um, but also Lena Oberdorf. I think for me, I mean, seeing her in the uh, the Champions League final uh, last month, you know. Playing against, she was with Wolfsburg, obviously playing against Barcelona. I think she was a massive uh, part of the fact that for a good solid forty-five minutes, Barcelona looked like they were on the ropes and out of you know out of the final. It was it was crazy, and I think you know she has those. She's the timing of her tackles, the interceptions, the, the her ability to read play. I mean, she picked up the uh, UEFA uh, Champions League Young Player of the Season. I think she's had an absolutely phenomenal one. So I think she's going to be someone who, like Russo, has kind of got a little bit of hype around her. But given a good tournament, I think she could explode on on the international stage. So excited. So producer Mike has written bold prediction for the last one. So have you got anything down for a bold prediction? We've already had Jesse saying the US aren't actually that good. <laughs> um, anyone want to raise that one? Um, US Lionesses final, two penalties. We win on final. Mary Earps pulls it out of the bag with <laughs> four out of five penalty saves. Okay. There we go. That is a bold prediction. <laughs> it's it's uh, specific. <laughs> Mm, my the uh, boldest prediction I would have would only be a negative England one, which would be like England to go out in the round of sixteen. Stop um, throwing that energy out there. But yeah, I don't know. I think because I feel so like I don't really have bold predictions other than saying that the USA aren't very good. Just because I, I as I've said before, I think this tournament's going to be so close. It's almost like it really does feel like anything could happen, and mm. I think that's that's. My bold prediction will be anything can happen. <laughs> that is so sitting on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to have loads and loads of content out on The Athletic. Do you want to talk us through some of the plans that you've got and the best way for people to catch the stuff we're putting out? Where do I even start? We've got a podcast going. We've got uh, a massive team going out there covering uh, everything, sort of US-focused, Lionesses-focused, Spain-focused. Um, so we're going to have article after article. We've got loads of like amazing World Cup pieces coming up, um, You know, highlighting some of the key players to watch out for, covering all of the main games, and also uh, doing live blogs as well. So it's going to be non-stop coverage. I don't anticipate that any of us will sleep, I think, We'll just do that in August when the competition ends. But yeah. yeah. So head over to theathletic.com, of course. And Jesse, you are out there. Where can we catch the stuff that you're putting out? Yes, you can find me on the Counterpress podcast throughout the tournament. And I will also be doing a daily World Cup email on my Substack, which you can find at flyinggeese.football. Mm, wonderful. Well, it's been great having you on. I'm totally hyped for the tournament now. Hope you both enjoy it a lot. And thank you so much for coming on today. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me.